One of the major uh, themes that runs through the book of Proverbs is the theme of life uh, and death. The words life and live occur about 55 times in Proverbs, and the words death and die around 20 times. Um, When we hear someone use the phrase, this is a matter of life and death, uh, they often mean that this uh, matters above all else. Uh, Life matters to us. Death uh, matters to us. Uh, We don't forget the birth, the new life of a child. Uh, We don't forget uh, the funeral of a close beloved friend or uh, family member. Yet, the wisdom of Proverbs brings us beneath the surface of physical life and physical death uh, to something deeper, to a greater depth. What is life? What defines it? Uh, What defines death? And so to that we turn to one proverb, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 28. Proverbs 12, verse 28. It says this, In the path of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death. In the path of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death. As a a younger boy, one of the genres, probably few genres of books that I took to, were called Choose Your Own Adventure Novels. I don't know if anybody is familiar with those. Wouldn't mind finding them again, actually. Uh, But this meant as you were reading along, the author would kind of abruptly pause the story and give you, as the reader, a choice in the direction the story would go. For example, it might say, to take the path to the waterfall, turn to page 76 and continue reading. Or if you want to take the southern route uh, to the cave dwelling, turn to page 85 and then continue reading. And as a young person... um, These were very enjoyable, not only because they were always adventurous and kind of gripping, and not only because you had a part to play, you got to actually uh, make a choice about how the story would unfold, but you came to realize that whatever path you took, it really always ended in your favor. There was always a sense of security. The end was always good. You were never going to be led down a path at least in any of the stories that I read, that resulted in great loss or pain or death. And it seems to me that much of our society, certainly today, views life and defines life in that kind of way. Though we all know physical death is a reality, when it comes to defining what is life, it's really about having the free will and freedom to choose the path and the adventure of your own liking. That is life. Whatever makes you happy, whatever suits you, whatever adventure you want to go down, that's life. So that life really becomes about me, my choices, my adventure, my path. But Proverbs here and throughout Scripture, we are given a depth perception about what truly defines life and its pathway and what truly defines death and its pathway. We've seen and heard Jesus uh, teach in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 about the two gates or two ways. Matthew 7, 13, where he says, Enter by the narrow gate, 
For the gate is wide, the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And so while there are many decisions and choices that people make on a daily basis and throughout our lives, some of those decisions and choices we know to be quite significant. Choices like, what work or career will I choose to pursue in life? can be a very shaping reality. Should we seek to have another child? What, what church or Christian tradition am I going to choose to associate with? Am I going to pursue a, a college or go directly into uh, the workforce? So there's all kinds of choices that can shape the course of a person's life, but the wisdom of Proverbs is telling us that amidst those many decisions, there's really only two paths that exist that people are living on. Two paths in which people are walking. So it's not all the decisions that really define people. It's really what path they're on. One of two. Our text reveals, and what we've heard from Jesus, that those two ways are the path of life, and the path of death. But of course, the question surfaces, what defines life and what defines death? There's a lot more beneath the surface of what appears to be life and death. We might put it this way. All of us have a birthday. It's on the calendar. Some of us look forward to that day. I think as we start to get a little older, we may not look as forward to that day each year getting older, but we all have a day when we were birthed into this world, and in a lot of ways, life began. But we also all have a death day. We may not want to think about that as much, and we don't know when it will occur. It, too, is on the calendar. But what's important to know is that beneath the event of birth and physical life, and beneath the event of physical death, is another realm is another realm. In Proverbs, in the proverb that we have heard, and in other Proverbs and throughout Scripture, life and death are not just events. They're domains. They are realms. They are a state of being. So, for example, back in chapter 5 of Proverbs, when the wise father was warning his son about going down the path of sin, in that case, the forbidden woman, warning about that, he said this, her feet go down to death. Well, this death is not merely referring to the physical grave, but a domain of spiritual darkness. And that domain, that power, that realm, casts a shadow over the world today and over people's lives. It encroaches on life, even now. It comes in all kinds of forms, like fear and anxiety, slander, anger, rage, ungodliness in its many forms. Ultimately, it comes in the form of sin, which means that real life is more than the beating of a heart. Around the same time that I was uh, reading these adventure books as a young person, I was also learning how to ski, snow ski. And uh, my friend and I were taking lessons each Friday night through the winter season, And on one trip up the ski lift, as we were sitting side by side at about the highest point above the the snow below, about 40 or 50 feet up, my friend Brad, sitting right next to me, began swinging his legs, therefore his skis. 
And I remember looking away at one moment, turning back, and he had slipped off. And he hit the ground, and he went into a coma, as I recall, for about a week. Week. He survived by God's common grace. But in that state of comatose, while he was alive, there's no vitality of life. Completely unconscious. Now, that's just a physical illustration to communicate that in the spiritual domain or realm, there is a spiritual death that exists, and that it exists in every person who is outside of Jesus Christ. We heard read Ephesians 2 earlier, and I would encourage you to turn to Ephesians 2 just to be reminded of the language, and this is a chapter for many of us that's probably quite familiar how Paul describes life and death beyond physical events and realities and into a deeper domain. So Ephesians 2.1, here's what Paul said, as we heard earlier. You and you were dead, as he writes to Christians in the church, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, verse 3, among whom we all once lived. Note the words in the language. He speaks of a death in the midst of life. You you were dead in sin in which you walked. So this is a picture of a kind of uh, dead men and women walking, living. And it's a picture, notice, of a path, like the proverb, following the course of this world. So there is a course to this world, a pathway in this world, that has a death about it. But then verse 4 comes. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, even when we were dead in sin, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. As R.C. Sproul years ago so well illustrated, the picture here in Ephesians 2 and other places in Scripture is not of a a man in the middle of the sea, struggling to stay afloat, flailing his arms, barely staying alive. No, he said the picture is that of a man at the bottom of the sea. He is without life, as Paul says. He's dead in sin. And Christ dives into the water, goes to the bottom of the sea, takes that lifeless body to the surface and to the shore and breathes into him, New life, new spiritual life. And he's made alive. Even when we were dead, he made us alive. When Jesus was explaining to Nicodemus how new spiritual life is obtained, he said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That is, apart from a new birth, a new life, a person is blind. They're unconscious, in a sense, to who God is, to the redeeming grace of God, to how God continues to be at work in his world and creation. Born again, Jesus says. That is the concept of regeneration, which we hear of in Titus 3.5, the word and concept. J.I. Packer, in his work, Concise Theology, says this about being born again or the concept of regeneration. He says the concept is of God renovating the heart, the core of a person's being, by implanting a new principle of desire, purpose, and action, a new disposition 
that finds expression in responding to the gospel and its Christ. New life in Christ. So this is a life that, while once was separated from God and under his wrath, is now reconciled to God and under his grace. It's a new position. Once enslaved and desiring sin, now there's a new heart desiring God. Once living for self, now living for God. And and Jesus taught that in John 3, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. But then later in John 10, he said that he came that he might give people life abundantly. Maybe a very familiar text to you. That word abundant means beyond what is anticipated, exceeding the expectation, going past the expected limit. It's a life so well described by uh, Paul in Galatians uh, 5 in the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy, patience, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Who doesn't want more of these characteristics, more of that kind of life? And yet we we ought to keep our eyes peeled for a danger here. And I think that danger, for some of us, is familiarity. Familiarity. We might think, I've heard this before. I know this. I know John 10.10. I've heard it many times. I know where abundant life is found. I know my scriptures and my doctrine. Ray Ortland said this, Theologically aware people can become arrogant and not even notice it. Let's always remember that life is not in our theology. Life is in Christ, out of whom our theology flows. He's not a mere concept. He is a living person. Jesus said, I am the vine. You are the branches. Abide in me, I'll abide in you, and you will bear much fruit. So life, life with God, life everlasting, the fruitful life is through Christ and our Union with him. I love the way Proverbs 12.28, our text, reveals where life is found. Because the text says that true life is in a particular path. A path or way. And what is that way? It says in the path of righteousness is life. That's where life is. In this path of righteousness Well, what is righteousness? Because it's on that path that I will obtain and know life. Well, this is an important and weighty word, a concept in both the Old and New Testament, righteousness. But in Deuteronomy, when Moses was instructing the people about using weights and scales in the marketplace to measure the goods that they were selling, he said this, a full and fair weight you shall have. Deuteronomy 25.15. Your scale for buying and selling needs to be fair, just, is what he's saying. Well, that word fair is our word in Proverbs 12.28, righteous. So a righteous or just weight represents the true standard or reality. A person who's living in the path of righteousness is one living out the standard or the commandments of God, in the ways of God, the standard and commands of God. Well, this makes sense. But it's here that we really face a colossal problem, but also the good news. When Paul, the apostle, was laying out uh, masterfully the gospel message through the book of Romans, 
he used the same word in Proverbs 12, 28, when translated into Greek, righteousness. But when Paul begins to use the word, he uses it kind of like a 10,000-pound weight to, to crush any notion or suggestion that this righteousness originates or is produced from within us. That's what he wants to make very clear in the opening chapters 1 through 3 of Romans. So if you turn to Romans chapter 1, verse 18... Paul says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We we might think to ourselves, well, yes, there are unrighteous people out there. But Paul wants to make clear in chapter 1, 2, and 3 of Romans that, that all people are unrighteous, that Gentiles are unrighteous, that Jews are unrighteous. So that by chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says this, we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, and then he quotes Psalm 14, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. No one does good, not even one. Well, the proverb says, in the path of righteousness is life. But here, in Romans, we're told that none is righteous. No, not one. No one in themselves measures up to the standard, the commands, or the righteousness of God. And yet we know there is one. There is one. As we sing, my hope, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So Paul goes on in that third chapter of Romans, and he kind of pulls back the curtain to reveal and remind God's people of a righteousness that comes from outside of man, from outside of people. Romans 3, 21. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Though the law and prophets, the Old Testament, speak about it and bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So that it is faith in Christ that unites us to him who is the vine, who is the standard, who is the righteous one, who's the way and the path of holiness, and who was crucified for us as a substitution for our sin. All of this certainly means our standing, our relation to God, is not ultimately dependent upon your morality or moral output. That means peace with God. This also means our assurance of salvation ultimately rests not on how I feel, at a given time, how emotionally intact I am, how much I know, it rests upon the person and work of Christ who paved and lived the path of righteousness for me. It also means new life. Christ imparts His Spirit who indwells us and causes us to bear fruit. 
And it means our standard of truth, our standard of righteousness does not come from man. It comes from God. Just a couple days ago, while driving back home through Hartford on 84, a large billboard, I think one of our kids pointed it out, said, look at that. It says, love is love. And I thought to myself, what? Where are we? Now, maybe you know what's behind the meaning of that, but when I hear that, I think to myself, this is meaningless. This means nothing. Love is love. Seems the standard of our culture. Love is anything. Love is whatever you want it to be, what I determine it to be. But the scripture says, God, God is love. God determines what love is. God determines what truth is. And then we see that on this path of righteousness, of life, there is the production of fruit. If you turn back just one chapter very quickly to Proverbs 11.30, it says this, the, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and whoever captures souls is wise. Those who are in Christ, the righteous one, become righteous. They grow in holiness. This produces fruit that captures souls. Christ, who is the tree of life, the true vine, flows into us, causes us to be influential and effective in the lives of others. So you and I are God's strategy, really, uh, to spread the life uh, that comes from Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, how we thank you for the working of your Holy Spirit to bring new life. How we praise you that by your grace you have set us, your people, upon um, the path of life, the path of righteousness. And all the um, effects and results that flow from our life in Jesus Christ and our union with him. So we pray that you would encourage us uh, this day and that we would find a deeper and deeper rest upon his sufficient mercy. Lord, that we might be even overwhelmed in our hearts and in our minds, that you would go to such an extent to make alive a spiritually dead people through the powerful work of the cross of Jesus Christ. May we know your love again, be refreshed by it, And we praise you and love you in Jesus' name. Amen.